Section 25 of A Collection of Supreme Court Opinions by the United States Supreme Court. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Roe v. Wade, 410 U.S. 113, decided January 2, 1973. Part 1. Please note, this is a reading of the opinion of the court only. This reading does not include the syllabus or any concurring or dissenting opinions. For ease of listening, this reading omits legal citations found within the text of the court's opinion. Mr. Justice Blackman delivered the opinion of the court. This Texas federal appeal and its Georgia companion, Doe v. Bolton, post, present constitutional challenges to state criminal abortion legislation. The Texas statutes under attack here are typical of those that have been in effect in many states for approximately a century. The Georgia statutes, in contrast, have a modern cast and are a legislative product that, to an extent at least, obviously reflects the influences of recent attitudinal change, of advancing medical knowledge and techniques, and of new thinking about an old issue. We forthwith acknowledge our awareness of the sensitive and emotional nature of the abortion controversy, of the vigorous opposing views, even among physicians, and of the deep and seemingly absolute convictions that the subject inspires. One's philosophy, one's experiences, one's exposure to the raw edges of human existence, one's religious training, one's attitudes toward life and family and their values, and the moral standards one establishes and seeks to observe, are all likely to influence and to color one's thinking and conclusions about abortion. In addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. Our task, of course, is to resolve the issue by constitutional measurement, free of emotion and of predilection. We seek earnestly to do this, and because we do, we have inquired into and in this opinion place some emphasis upon medical and medical legal history, and what that history reveals about man's attitudes toward the abortion procedure over the centuries. We bear in mind, too, Mr. Justice Holmes' admonition in his now vindicated dissent in Lochner v. New York, quote, The Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing views, and the accident of our finding certain opinions natural and familiar or novel and even shocking ought not to conclude our judgment upon the question whether statutes embodying them conflict with the Constitution of the United States. End of quote. The Texas statutes that concern us here are Articles 1191 through 1194 and 1196 of the state's penal code. Footnote. Article 1191. Abortion. If any person shall designedly administer to a pregnant woman or knowingly procure to be administered with her consent any drug or medicine, or shall use towards her any violence or means whatever externally or internally applied, and thereby procure an abortion, he shall be confined in the penitentiary not less than two, nor more than five years. If it be done without her consent, the punishment shall be doubled. By abortion is meant that the life of the fetus or embryo shall be destroyed in the woman's womb, or that a premature birth thereof be caused. Article 1192. Furnishing the Means. Whoever furnishes the means for procuring an abortion, knowing the purpose intended, is guilty as an accomplice. 
Article 1193. Attempt at abortion. If the means used shall fail to produce an abortion, the offender is nevertheless guilty of an attempt to produce abortion, provided it be shown that such means were calculated to produce that result, and shall be fined not less than one hundred nor more than one thousand dollars. Article 1194. Murder in producing abortion. If the death of the mother is occasioned by an abortion so produced, or by an attempt to effect the same, it is murder. Article 1196. Nothing in this chapter applies to an abortion procured or attempted by medical advice for the purpose of saving the life of the mother. The foregoing articles, together with Article 1195, compose Chapter 9 of Title 15 of the Penal Code. Article 1195, not attacked here, reads, Article 1195, Destroying Unborn Child. Whoever shall, during parturition of the mother, destroy the vitality or life in a child in a state of being born and before actual birth, which child would otherwise have been born alive, shall be confined in the penitentiary for life or for not less than five years. End of footnote. These make it a crime to, quote, procure an abortion, end of quote, as therein defined, or to attempt one, except with respect to, quote, an abortion procured or attempted by medical advice for the purpose of saving the life of the mother, end of quote. Similar statutes are in existence in a majority of the states. Texas first enacted a criminal abortion statute in 1854. This was soon modified into language that has remained substantially unchanged to the present time. The final article in each of these compilations provided the same exception, as does the present Article 1196, for an abortion by, quote, medical advice for the purpose of saving the life of the mother, end of quote. Footnote. Long ago, a suggestion was made that the Texas statutes were unconstitutionally vague because of definitional deficiencies. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals disposed of that suggestion peremptorily, saying only, quote, It is also insisted in the motion in arrest of judgment that the statute is unconstitutional and void, in that it does not sufficiently define or describe the offense of abortion. We do not concur in respect to this question. End of quote. The same court recently has held again that the state's abortion statutes are not unconstitutionally vague or overbroad. The court held that, quote, the state of Texas has a compelling interest to protect fetal life, end of quote. That Article 1191, quote, is designed to protect fetal life, end of quote. That the Texas homicide statutes, particularly Article 1205 of the Penal Code, are intended to protect a person, quote, in existence by actual birth, end of quote and thereby implicitly recognize other human life that is not, quote, in existence by actual birth, end of quote. That the definition of human life is for the legislature and not the courts. That Article 1196, quote, is more definite than the District of Columbia statute upheld in United States versus Village, end of quote. And that the Texas statute, quote, is not vague and indefinite or overbroad, end of quote. A physician's abortion conviction was affirmed. In Thompson, the court observed that any issue as to the burden of proof under the exemption of Article 1196, quote, is not before us, end of quote. End of footnote. Two, Jane Rowe, footnote, the name is a pseudonym, end of footnote. 
A single woman who was residing in Dallas County, Texas, instituted this federal action in March 1970 against the district attorney of the county. She sought a declaratory judgment that the Texas criminal abortion statutes were unconstitutional on their face and an injunction restraining the defendant from enforcing the statutes. Roe alleged that she was unmarried and pregnant, that she wished to terminate her pregnancy by an abortion, quote, performed by a competent licensed physician under safe clinical conditions, end of quote, that she was unable to get a legal abortion in Texas because her life did not appear to be threatened by the continuation of her pregnancy, and that she could not afford to travel to another jurisdiction in order to secure a legal abortion under safe conditions. She claimed that the Texas statutes were unconstitutionally vague and that they abridged her right of personal privacy, protected by the First, Fourth, Fifth, Ninth, and Fourteenth Amendments. By an amendment to her complaint, Roe purported to sue, quote, on behalf of herself and all other women, end of quote, similarly situated. James Hubert Halford, a licensed physician, sought and was granted leave to intervene in Roe's action. In his complaint, he alleged that he had been arrested previously for violations of the Texas abortion statutes, and that two such prosecutions were pending against him. He described conditions of patients who came to him seeking abortions, and he claimed that for many cases he, as a physician, was unable to determine whether they fell within or outside the exception recognized by Article 1196. He alleged that, as a consequence, the statutes were vague and uncertain, in violation of the 14th Amendment, and that they violated his own and his patient's rights to privacy in the doctor-patient relationship, and his own right to practice medicine, rights he claimed were guaranteed by the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. John and Mary Doe, footnote, these names are pseudonyms, end of footnote, a married couple, filed a companion complaint to that of Roe. They also named the district attorney as defendant, claimed like constitutional deprivations, and sought declaratory and injunctive relief. The Doe's alleged that they were a childless couple, that Mrs. Doe was suffering from a, quote, neurochemical, end of quote, disorder, that her physician had, quote, advised her to avoid pregnancy until such time as her condition was materially improved, end of quote, although a pregnancy at the present time would not present, quote, a serious risk, end of quote, to her life, that, pursuant to medical advice, she had discontinued use of birth control pills, and that, if she should become pregnant, she would want to terminate the pregnancy by an abortion performed by a competent licensed physician under safe clinical conditions. By an amendment to their complaint, the Doe's purported to sue, quote, on behalf of themselves and all couples similarly situated, end of quote. The two actions were consolidated and heard together by a duly convened three-judge district court. The suits thus presented the situations of the pregnant single woman, the childless couple, with the wife not pregnant, and the licensed practicing physician, all joining in the attack on the Texas criminal abortion statutes. Upon the filing of affidavits, motions were made for dismissal and for summary judgment. The court held that Roe and members of her class and Dr. Halford had standing to sue and presented justiciable controversies, but that the Doe's had failed to allege facts sufficient to state a present controversy and did not have standing. 
it concluded that with respect to the request for a declaratory judgment abstention was not warranted on the merits the district court held that the quote, fundamental right of single women and married persons to choose whether to have children is protected by the ninth amendment through the fourteenth amendment end of quote and that the texas criminal abortion statutes were void on their face because they were both unconstitutionally vague and constituted an overbroad infringement of the plaintiff's ninth amendment rights the court then held that abstention was warranted with respect to the request for an injunction it therefore dismissed the doe's complaint declared the abortion statutes void and dismissed the application for injunctive relief the plaintiffs roe and doe and the intervener halford pursuant to twenty eight u s c section twelve fifty three have appealed to this court from that part of the district court's judgment denying the injunction the defendant district attorney has purported to cross appeal pursuant to the same statute from the court's grant of declaratory relief to roe and halford both sides also have taken protective appeals to the united states court of appeals for the fifth circuit that court ordered the appeals held in abeyance pending decision here we postponed decision on jurisdiction to the hearing on the merits it might have been preferable if the defendant pursuant to our rule twenty had presented to us a petition for certiori before judgment in the court of appeals with respect to the granting of the plaintiff's prayer for declaratory relief our decisions in mitchell v donovan and gunn v university committee are to the effect that section twelve fifty three does not authorize an appeal to this court from the grant or denial of declaratory relief alone we conclude nevertheless that those decisions do not foreclose our review of both the injunctive and the declaratory aspects of a case of this kind when it is properly here as this one is on appeal under twelve fifty three from specific denial of injunctive relief and the arguments as to both aspects are necessarily identical it would be destructive of time and energy for all concerned were we to rule otherwise four we are next confronted with issues of judiciability standing and abstention have roe and the does established that quote, personal stake in the outcome of the controversy end of quote, that ensures that quote, the dispute sought to be adjudicated will be presented in an adversary context and in a form historically viewed as capable of judicial resolution end of quote. and what effect did the pendency of criminal abortion charges against dr halford in state court have upon the propriety of the federal courts granting relief to him as a plaintiff intervener a jane roe despite the use of the pseudonym no suggestion is made that roe is a fictitious person for purposes of her case we accept as true and as established her existence her pregnant state as of the inception of her suit in march nineteen seventy and as late as may twenty first of that year when she filed an alias affidavit with the district court and her inability to obtain a legal abortion in texas viewing roe's case as of the time of its filing and thereafter until as late as may there can be little dispute that it then presented a case or controversy and that wholly apart from the class aspects she as a pregnant single woman thwarted by the texas criminal abortion laws had standing to challenge those statutes indeed we do not read the appellee's brief as really asserting anything to the contrary 
the quote, logical nexus between the status asserted and the claim sought to be adjudicated, end of quote, and the necessary degree of contentiousness are both present. The appellee notes, however, that the record does not disclose that Roe was pregnant at the time of the district court hearing on May 22, 1970, or on the following June 17th when the court's opinion and judgment were filed. And he suggests that Roe's case must now be moot because she and all other members of her class are no longer subject to any 1970 pregnancy. The usual rule in federal cases is that an actual controversy must exist at stages of appellate or certiorari review, and not simply at the date the action is initiated. But when, as here, pregnancy is a significant fact in the litigation, the normal 266-day human gestation period is so short that the pregnancy will come to term before the usual appellate process is complete. If that termination makes a case moot, pregnancy litigation seldom will survive much beyond the trial stage, and appellate review will be effectively denied. Our law should not be that rigid. Pregnancy often comes more than once to the same woman, and in the general population, if man is to survive, it will always be with us. Pregnancy provides a classic justification for a conclusion of non-mootness. It truly could be, quote, capable of repetition, yet evading review, end of quote. We therefore agree with the district court that Jane Roe had standing to undertake this litigation, that she presented a justiciable controversy, and that the termination of her 1970 pregnancy has not rendered her case moot. B. Dr. Halford. The doctor's position is different. He entered Roe's litigation as a plaintiff intervener, alleging in his complaint that he, quote, in the past has been arrested for violating the Texas abortion laws and at the present time stands charged by indictment with violating said laws in the criminal district court of Dallas County, Texas, to wit, 1. The State of Texas versus James H. Halford, number C695307-1H, and 2. The State of Texas versus James H. Halford, number C692524H. In both cases, the defendant is charged with abortion. End of quote. In his application for leave to intervene, the doctor made like representations as to the abortion charges pending in the state court. These representations were also repeated in the affidavit he executed and filed in support of his motion for summary judgment. Dr. Halford is, therefore, in the position of seeking in a federal court declaratory and injunctive relief with respect to the same statutes under which he stands charged in criminal prosecutions simultaneously pending in state court. Although he stated that he has been arrested in the past for violating the state's abortion laws, he makes no allegation of any substantial and immediate threat to any federally protected right that cannot be asserted in his defense against the state prosecutions. Neither is there any allegation of harassment or bad faith prosecution. In order to escape the rule articulated in the cases cited in the next paragraph of this opinion, that absent harassment and bad faith, a defendant in a pending state criminal case cannot affirmatively challenge in federal court the statutes under which the state is prosecuting him, Dr. Halford seeks to distinguish his status as a present state defendant from his status as a, quote, potential future defendant, end of quote, and to assert only the latter for standing purposes here. We see no merit in that distinction. Our decision in Samuels v. Mackle 
compels the conclusion that the district court erred when it granted declaratory relief to Dr. Halford instead of refraining from so doing. The court, of course, was correct in refusing to grant injunctive relief to the doctor. The reasons supportive of that action, however, are those expressed in Samuels v. Mackle, Supra, and in Younger v. Harris, Boyle v. Landry, Perez v. Ledesma, and Byrne v. Carleus. See also Dombrowski v. Pfister. We note in passing that Younger and its companion cases were decided after the three-judge district court decision in this case. Dr. Halford's complaint and intervention, therefore, is to be dismissed. Footnote. We need not consider what different result, if any, would follow if Dr. Halford's intervention were on behalf of a class. His complaint in intervention does not purport to assert a class suit and makes no reference to any class apart from an allegation that he, quote, and others similarly situated, end of quote, must necessarily guess at the meaning of Article 1196. His application for leave to intervene goes somewhat further for it asserts that Plaintiff Roe does not adequately protect the interest of the doctor, quote, and the class of people who are physicians, and the class of people who are patients, end of quote. The leave application, however, is not the complaint. Despite the district court's statement to the contrary, we fail to perceive the essentials of a class suit in the Halford complaint. End of footnote. He is remitted to his defenses in the state criminal proceedings against him. We reverse the judgment of the district court insofar as it granted Dr. Halford relief and failed to dismiss his complaint in intervention. C. The Doe's. In view of our ruling as to Rose standing in her case, the issue of the Doe's standing in their case has little significance. The claims they assert are essentially the same as those of Roe, and they attack the same statutes. Nevertheless, we briefly note the Doe's posture. Their pleadings present them as a childless married couple, the woman not being pregnant, who have no desire to have children at this time because of their having received medical advice that Mrs. Doe should avoid pregnancy, and for, quote, other highly personal reasons, end of quote. But they, quote, fear they may face the prospect of becoming parents, end of quote. And if pregnancy ensues, they, quote, would want to terminate, end of quote, it by an abortion. They assert an inability to obtain an abortion legally in Texas, and consequently, the prospect of obtaining an illegal abortion there, or of going outside Texas to some place where the procedure could be obtained legally and competently. We thus have as plaintiffs a married couple who have, as their asserted immediate and present injury, only an alleged, quote, detrimental effect upon their marital happiness, end of quote, because they are forced to, quote, the choice of refraining from normal sexual relations or of endangering Mary Doe's health through a possible pregnancy, end of quote. Their claim is that sometime in the future, Mrs. Doe might become pregnant because of possible failure of contraceptive measures, and at that time in the future, she might want an abortion that might then be illegal under the Texas statutes. The very phrasing of the Doe's position reveals its speculative character. Their alleged injury rests on possible future contraceptive failure, possible future pregnancy, possible future unpreparedness for parenthood, and possible future impairment of health. Any one or more of these several possibilities may not take place, and all may not combine. In the Doe's estimation, these possibilities might have some real or imagined impact upon their marital happiness. 
but we are not prepared to say that the bare allegation of so indirect an injury is sufficient to present an actual case or controversy the does claim falls far short of those resolved otherwise in the cases that the does urge upon us namely investment company institute v camp data processing service v camp and epperson v arkansas see also truax v rache the does therefore are not appropriate plaintiffs in this litigation their complaint was properly dismissed by the district court and we affirm that dismissal five the principal thrust of the appellant's attack on the Texas statutes is that they improperly invade a right said to be possessed by the pregnant woman to choose to terminate her pregnancy. Appellant would discover this right in the concept of personal liberty embodied in the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, or in personal, marital, familial, and sexual privacy said to be protected by the Bill of Rights or its penumbras or among those rights reserved to the people by the Ninth Amendment. Before addressing this claim, we feel it desirable briefly to survey, in several aspects, the history of abortion, for such insight as that history may afford us, and then to examine the state purposes and interests behind the criminal abortion laws. 6. It perhaps is not generally appreciated that the restrictive criminal abortion laws in effect in a majority of states today are of relatively recent vintage. Those laws generally prescribing abortion or its attempt at any time during pregnancy except when necessary to preserve the pregnant woman's life are not of ancient or even of common law origin. Instead, they derive from statutory changes effected for the most part in the latter half of the 19th century. 1. Ancient Attitudes These are not capable of precise determination. We are told that at the time of the Persian Empire, abortifacients were known, and that criminal abortions were severely punished. We are also told, however, that abortion was practiced in Greek times as well as in the Roman era, and that, quote, it was resorted to without scruple, end of quote. The Ephesian, Serranos, often described as the greatest of the ancient gynecologists, appears to have been generally opposed to Rome's prevailing free abortion practices. He found it necessary to think first of the life of the mother, and he resorted to abortion when, upon this standard, he felt the procedure advisable. Greek and Roman law afforded little protection to the unborn. If abortion was prosecuted in some places, it seems to have been based on a concept of a violation of the father's right to his offspring. Ancient religion did not bar abortion. 2. The Hippocratic Oath what, then, of the famous oath that has stood so long as the ethical guide of the medical profession, and that bears the name of the great Greek, 460 to 377 B.C., who has been described as the father of medicine, the, quote, wisest and the greatest practitioner of his art, end of quote, and the, quote, most important and most complete medical personality of antiquity, end of quote, who dominated the medical schools of his time, and who typified the sum of the medical knowledge of the past. The oath varies somewhat according to the particular translation, but in any translation the content is clear. Quote, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel, and in like manner I will not give to a woman a pessary to produce abortion. End of quote. Or, quote, I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy. End of quote. 
Although the oath is not mentioned in any of the principal briefs in this case or in Dovey Bolton, it represents the apex of the development of strict ethical concepts in medicine, and its influence endures to this day. Why did not the authority of Hippocrates dissuade abortion practice in his time and that of Rome? The late Dr. Edelstein provides us with a theory. The oath was not uncontested even in Hippocrates' day. Only the Pythagorean school of philosophers frowned upon the related act of suicide. Most Greek thinkers, on the other hand, commended abortion, at least prior to viability. For the Pythagoreans, however, it was a matter of dogma. For them, the embryo was animate from the moment of conception, and abortion meant destruction of a living being. The abortion clause of the oath, therefore, quote, echoes Pythagorean doctrines, end of quote, and, quote, in no other stratum of Greek opinion were such views held or proposed in the same spirit of uncompromising austerity, end of quote. Dr. Edelstein then concludes that the oath originated in a group representing only a small segment of Greek opinion, and that it certainly was not accepted by all ancient physicians. He points out that medical writings down to Galen, A.D. 130 to 200, Quote, give evidence of the violation of almost every one of its injunctions, end of quote. But with the end of antiquity, a decided change took place. Resistance against suicide and against abortion became common. The oath came to be popular. The emerging teachings of Christianity were in agreement with the Pythagorean ethic. The oath, quote, became the nucleus of all medical ethics, end of quote, and, quote, was applauded as the embodiment of truth, end of quote. Thus suggests Dr. Edelstein, it is, quote, a Pythagorean manifesto, and not the expression of an absolute standard of medical conduct, end of quote. This, it seems to us, is a satisfactory and acceptable explanation of the Hippocratic Oath's apparent rigidity. It enables us to understand, in historical context, a long-accepted and revered statement of medical ethics. 3. The Common Law it is undisputed that at common law, abortion performed before, quote, quickening, end of quote, the first recognizable movement of the fetus in utero appearing usually from the 16th to the 18th week of pregnancy, was not an indictable offense. The absence of a common law crime for pre-quickening abortion appears to have developed from a confluence of earlier philosophical, theological, and civil and canon law concepts of when life begins. These disciplines variously approached the question in terms of the point at which the embryo or fetus became formed or recognizably human, or in terms of when a person came into being, that is, infused with a soul or animated. A loose consensus evolved in early English law that these events occurred at some point between conception and live birth. Footnote. Early philosophers believed that the embryo or fetus did not become formed and begin to live until at least 40 days after conception for a male and 80 to 90 days for a female. Aristotle's thinking derived from his three-stage theory of life, vegetable, animal, rational. The vegetable stage was reached at conception, the animal at, quote, animation, end of quote, and the rational soon after live birth. This theory, together with the 40 to 80 day view, came to be accepted by early Christian thinkers. The theological debate was reflected in the writings of St. Augustine, who made a distinction between embryo inanimatus, not yet endowed with a soul, and embryo animatus. He may have drawn upon Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. 
At one point, however, he expressed the view that human powers cannot determine the point during fetal development at which the critical change occurs. Galen, in three treatises related to embryology, accepted the thinking of Aristotle and his followers. Later, Augustine on abortion was incorporated by Gratian into the Decretum published about 1140. This decretal and the decretals that followed were recognized as the definitive body of canon law until the new code of 1917, end of footnote. This was, quote, immediate animation, end of quote. Although Christian theology and the canon law came to fix the point of animation at 40 days for a male and 80 days for a female, a view that persisted until the 19th century, there was otherwise little agreement about the precise time of formation or animation. There was agreement, however, that prior to this point the fetus was to be regarded as part of the mother, and its destruction, therefore, was not homicide. Due to continued uncertainty about the precise time when animation occurred, to the lack of any empirical basis for the 40- to 80-day view, and perhaps to Aquinas's definition of movement as one of the two first principles of life, Bracton focused upon quickening as the critical point. The significance of quickening was echoed by later common law scholars and found its way into the received common law in this country. Whether abortion of a quick fetus was a felony at common law or even a lesser crime is still disputed. Bracton, writing early in the 13th century, thought it homicide. Footnote. Bracton took the position that abortion by blow or poison was homicide, quote, if the fetus be already formed and animated, and particularly if it be animated, end of quote. Or, as a later translation puts it, quote, if the fetus is already formed or quickened, especially if it is quickened, end of quote. End of footnote. But the later and predominant view, following the great common law scholars, has been that it was, at most, a lesser offense. In a frequently cited passage, Coke took the position that abortion of a woman, quote, quick with child, end of quote, is, quote, a great misprision and no murder, end of quote. Blackstone followed, saying that while abortion after quickening had once been considered manslaughter, though not murder, quote, modern law, end of quote, took a less severe view. A recent review of the common law precedents argues, however, that those precedents contradict Coke and that even post-quickening abortion was never established as a common law crime. Footnote. Means, the phoenix of abortional freedom, is a penumbral or Ninth Amendment right about to arise from the 19th century legislative ashes of a 14th century common law liberty, the author examines the two principal precedents cited marginally by Coke, both contrary to his dictum, and traces the treatment of these and other cases by earlier commentators. He concludes that Coke, who himself participated as an advocate in an abortion case in 1601, may have intentionally misstated the law. The author even suggests a reason. Coke's strong feelings against abortion, coupled with his determination to assert common law, secular jurisdiction to assess penalties for an offense that traditionally had been an exclusively ecclesiastical or canon law crime. See also later, who notes that some scholars doubt that the common law ever was applied to abortion, that the English ecclesiastical courts seem to have lost interest in the problem after 1527, and that the preamble to the English legislation of 1803 referred to in the text, states that, quote, no adequate means have been hitherto provided for the prevention and punishment of such offenses, end of quote. 
End of footnote. This is of some importance because, while most American courts ruled, in holding or dictum, that abortion of an unquickened fetus was not criminal under their received common law, others followed Coke in stating that abortion of a quick fetus was a, quote, misprision, end of quote, a term they translated to mean misdemeanor, that their reliance on Coke in this aspect of the law was uncritical, and, apparently in all the reported cases, dictum, due probably to the paucity of common law prosecutions for post-quickening abortion, makes it now appear doubtful that abortion was ever firmly established as a common law crime, even with respect to the destruction of a quick fetus. 4. The English Statutory Law England's first criminal abortion statute, Lord Ellenborough's Act, came in 1803. It made abortion of a quick fetus, Section 1, a capital crime, but in Section 2, it provided lesser penalties for the felony of abortion before quickening, and thus preserved the quickening distinction. This contrast was continued in the General Revision of 1828. It disappeared, however, together with the death penalty in 1837, and did not reappear in the Offenses Against the Person Act of 1861 that formed the core of English anti-abortion law until the liberalizing reforms of 1967. In 1929, the Infant Life Preservation Act came into being. Its emphasis upon the destruction of, quote, the life of a child capable of being born alive, end of quote. It made a willful act performed with the necessary intent a felony. It contained a proviso that one was not to be found guilty of the offense, quote, unless it is proved that the act which caused the death of the child was not done in good faith for the purpose only of preserving the life of the mother, end of quote. A seemingly notable development in the English law was the case of Rex v. Bourne. This case apparently answered in the affirmative the question whether an abortion necessary to preserve the life of the pregnant woman was accepted from the criminal penalties of the 1861 Act. In his instructions to the jury, Judge McNaughton referred to the 1929 Act and observed that that act related to, quote, the case where a child is killed by a willful act at the time when it is being delivered in the ordinary course of nature, end of quote. He concluded that the 1861 Act's use of the word, quote, unlawfully, end of quote, imported the same meaning expressed by the specific proviso in the 1929 Act, even though there was no mention of preserving the mother's life in the 1861 Act. He then construed the phrase, quote, preserving the life of the mother, end of quote, broadly, that is, quote, in a reasonable sense, end of quote, to include a serious and permanent threat to the mother's health, and instructed the jury to acquit Dr. Bourne if it found he had acted in a good faith belief that the abortion was necessary for this purpose. The jury did acquit. Recently, Parliament enacted a new abortion law. This is the Abortion Act of 1967. The Act permits a licensed physician to perform an abortion where two other licensed physicians agree a. Quote, that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk to the life of the pregnant woman or of injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman or any existing children of her family greater than if the pregnancy were terminated. End of quote. Or b. Quote, that there is a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped, end of quote. The Act also provides that in making this determination, quote, account may be taken of the pregnant woman's actual or reasonably foreseeable environment, end of quote. 
It also permits a physician, without the concurrence of others, to terminate a pregnancy where he is of the good faith opinion that the abortion, quote, is immediately necessary to save the life or to prevent grave permanent injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman, end of quote. 5. The American Law In this country, the law in effect in all but a few states until the mid-19th century was the pre-existing English common law. Connecticut, the first state to enact abortion legislation, adopted in 1821 that part of Lord Ellenborough's act that related to a woman, quote, quick with child, end of quote. The death penalty was not imposed. Abortion before quickening was made a crime in that state only in 1860. In 1828, New York enacted legislation that in two respects was to serve as a model for early anti-abortion statutes. First, while barring destruction of an unquickened fetus as well as a quick fetus, it made the former only a misdemeanor, but the latter second-degree manslaughter. Second, it incorporated a concept of therapeutic abortion by providing that an abortion was excused if it, quote, shall have been necessary to preserve the life of such mother or shall have been advised by two physicians to be necessary for such purpose, end of quote. By 1840, when Texas had received the common law, only eight American states had statutes dealing with abortion. It was not until after the war between the states that legislation began generally to replace the common law. Most of these initial statutes dealt severely with abortion after quickening, but were lenient with it before quickening. Most punished attempts equally with completed abortions. While many statutes included the exception for an abortion thought by one or more physicians to be necessary to save the mother's life, that provision soon disappeared, and the typical law required that the procedure actually be necessary for that purpose. Gradually, in the middle and late 19th century, the quickening distinction disappeared from the statutory law of most states, and the degree of the offense and the penalties were increased. By the end of the 1950s, a large majority of the jurisdictions banned abortion, however and whenever performed, unless done to save or preserve the life of the mother. The exceptions, Alabama and the District of Columbia, permitted abortion to preserve the mother's health. Three states permitted abortions that were not, quote, unlawfully, end of quote, performed, or that were not, quote, without lawful justification, end of quote, leaving interpretation of those standards to the courts. In the past several years, however, a trend toward liberalization of abortion statutes has resulted in adoption by about one-third of the states of less stringent laws, most of them patterned against the ALI Model Penal Code, Section 230.3, set forth as Appendix B to the opinion in Doe v. Bolton. Footnote. Fourteen states have adopted some form of the ALI statute. Mr. Justice Clark described some of these states as having, quote, led the way, end of quote. By the end of 1970, four other states had repealed criminal penalties for abortions performed in early pregnancy by a licensed physician, subject to stated procedural and health requirements. The precise status of criminal abortion laws in some states is made unclear by recent decisions in state and federal courts striking down existing state laws in whole or in part. End of footnote. It is thus apparent that, at common law, at the time of the adoption of our Constitution, and throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under most American statutes currently in effect. Phrasing it another way, 
a woman enjoyed a substantially broader right to terminate a pregnancy than she does in most states today, at least with respect to the early stage of pregnancy, and very possibly without such a limitation, the opportunity to make this choice was present in this country well into the 19th century. Even later, the law continued for some time to treat less punitively an abortion procured in early pregnancy. 6. The Position of the American Medical Association The anti-abortion mood prevalent in this country in the late 19th century was shared by the medical profession. Indeed, the attitude of the profession may have played a significant role in the enactment of stringent criminal abortion legislation during that period. An AMA Committee on Criminal Abortion was appointed in May 1857. It presented its report to the 12th Annual Meeting. That report observed that the committee had been appointed to investigate criminal abortion, quote, with a view to its general suppression, end of quote. It deplored abortion and its frequency, and it listed three causes of, quote, this general demoralization. The first of these causes is a widespread popular ignorance of the true character of the crime, a belief, even among mothers themselves, that the fetus is not alive till after the period of quickening. The second of the agents alluded to is the fact that the profession themselves are frequently supposed careless of fetal life. The third reason of the frightful extent of this crime is found in the grave defects of our laws, both common and statute, as regards the independent and actual existence of the child before birth as a living being. These errors, which are sufficient in most instances to prevent conviction, are based, and only based, upon mistaken and exploded medical dogmas. With strange inconsistency, the law fully acknowledges the fetus in utero and its inherent rights for civil purposes, while personally, and as criminally affected, it fails to recognize it, and to its life as yet denies all protection. End of quote. The committee then offered, and the association adopted, resolutions protesting, quote, against such unwarrantable destruction of human life, end of quote, calling upon state legislatures to revise their abortion laws and requesting the cooperation of state medical societies, quote, in pressing the subject, end of quote. In 1871, a long and vivid report was submitted by the Committee on Criminal Abortion. It ended with the observation, quote, We had to deal with human life. In a matter of less importance, we could entertain no compromise. An honest judge on the bench would call things by their proper names. We could do no less, end of quote. It proffered resolutions adopted by the association, recommending, among other things, that it, quote, be unlawful and unprofessional for any physician to induce abortion or premature labor without the concurrent opinion of at least one respectable consulting physician, and then always with a view to the safety of the child, if that be possible, end of quote, and calling, quote, the attention of the clergy of all denominations to the perverted views of morality entertained by a large class of females, I and men also, on this important question, end of quote. End of section 25. Recording by Colleen McMahon.